literally today when I found this perfect gem of a video, I was both elated and also extremely embarrassed. You know, of my past of wanting to be a vlogger. Oh, same. Uh, when you sent me that video, it inspired me to look at my old YouTube videos that <laughs> I had posted, like, eight plus years ago when I was like, I'm going to be a famous vlogger, and I'm also going to be one of those famous people who sings covers on YouTube and gets noticed, and oh my god. <laughs> you know, I did share, and it's now been a couple of weeks, uh, but just a second ago, I shared a mini wine review from this vlog. It was like Britney circa 2011, so that's on our Instagram if you guys want to go check it out. Also Facebook um, and Twitter. I just put it on everything because it's literally freaking hilarious, and my favorite part <laughs> My favorite part is the very beginning when, before I even mention I'm about to talk about wine, I say, with all seriousness, I go, and just so y'all know, I'm 23, so this is okay. And I'm like, <laughs> what, Brittany, come on. Like, you didn't drink before. Like, let's be real. For real. But also, what the fuck is up with my voice <laughs> throughout the whole I know, thing? You're... I'm like this, like little girl who just wants to tell you about her favorite things and that's not even how i sound like and to be completely honest i think that is a great visual representation and auditory representation of how my confidence has changed in the last like 10 years you know oh same i mean in my vlog video i posted i'm like uh hey guys uh this <laughs> is uh me i'm Tyler. And I'm like, wow. Um. <laughs> um, but anyway, hi everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I am Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And instead of vloggers, we became podcasters. So, you know, you know the way things oh my God. transition. Speaking of being podcasters, I saw this hilarious tweet. Um, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to, um, but it, God, what did it say? It was like, it was, it was joking about how many people are running for president. And it's like, is running for president just the, I'm going to start a podcast for rich people? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, you see all those memes that they're like, hi, I am 28 years old. I'm in crippling debt. I have a job I hate. And I just started a podcast. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> that's, you know, it's just how now, like, everyone in their late 20s, early 30s are podcasters but you know what there is nothing Which wrong I, with that i love I will it say i did not realize that it was a thing like oh everyone does because i don't know anyone else who is like i'm gonna start a podcast i know a couple people who've like been on other people's podcasts like as guests or as like correspondents yeah but i i'm like i don't know anyone else i know i guess to be completely honest i also don't actually know anyone else well with that you know, on the same line of how do people do podcasts and everyone's doing podcasts, you know what helps people in their podcasts? Patreon. So yeah. <laughs> if you guys haven't checked it out already, hop on over to our Patreon. We have murder mini episodes. We're about to launch a new wine review series where we dive into wines that are not in our normal episodes, maybe a little bit more about the varietals, the regions, talk about how to properly taste a wine and we actually now finally have a date. Our first wine review, which it still doesn't have a name, um, it's launching on July 4th. So that is coming up here in a couple of weeks. 
And after these courses, you're going to be able to actually be able to dive into the history, culture, and taste of wine from just the smell of it. <laughs> no, we're, just kidding. We're not Psalms. We're not Psalms. And I literally looked up what it would require to become one. And even to like, there's an intro level where basically you just have to prove you know a lot of stuff. And it's this two day intense crash course that you actually have to study months in advance for because the test is at the end of day two. <laughs> and that just gives you your like your intro no. you, you get a pin and then the next level is a certified psalm and that's where you do the blind taste test where you have to say like where it's from what year it's from what grapes are in it like all of the stuff that we talk about but you just have to know it and then the final level is they actually put a bottle of wine in a lead-lined box in another room <laughs> And blindfold you. And you have to be able to tell everything about that wine just from its proximity to you. It's crazy. I mean, that's not too far off, to be completely honest. But anyway, so be sure to hop on over. Thank you to everyone who's already a Patreon supporter. I know you guys are enjoying all of this content. Thank you all for messaging us. Like, seriously, loving every bit of it. And another action item for y'all, just on top of this, is to subscribe this is a work. <laughs> I don't care. The next step is... <laughs> and so action items for this meeting are... We need y'all to head over and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your podcast listening platform of choice is. If you have the option to subscribe, do so because... It just makes life easier, and you automatically get our episodes. You don't have to go searching for them, and yeah, yeah. Yes. So before we get into this week's topic and our wines, I did want to provide a little bit of an update on the Dallas murders of transgender women of color and also just the high murder rate that's been happening. So on June 5th is when this happened. So it's been a few days since then, but there was a man that was arrested and charged with three of the homicides that have happened. As of late, his name is Kendra Lyles. And two of these victims were the transgender women of color, one being Malaysia Booker. And um, he's also connected to an unnamed female victim and Shinal Lindsay, who was a victim found at White Rock Lake. And so police learned that Lyles drives a light-colored Lincoln LS, and that matched the description of a car that Booker was seen getting into the morning she was found dead. And additional evidence of cell phone data also put him at the scene of Booker's murder. So, Mm -hmm. however... There were other murders of transgender women of color, the one from October 2018 and April 2019, that he's not linked to, but those cases are still being investigated, and there could be something that links him, or, you know, maybe there are two horrible people going around right now. But yeah, I just wanted to provide a little bit of an update. I watched the press event a couple of days ago, and it's still the very, very beginning of the investigation. They're not releasing a lot of information. There's like one article, and wherever you look, it's the same article that's basically repeated. So, Um, I mean, looking forward to following that case. Definitely. Yeah, and I'm absolutely paying attention to it, especially with, with it being so close to home. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad that he was caught, but I still think that Dallas needs more than, like, two part-time homicide detectives and a sign that says, please don't murder, (laughs) as their, like, employee of the month. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. There's still, you know, the definite need for more people on the police force, and obviously that just, there's a whole lot around all of that, but I 100% agree. Well, this week's topic is one that is a little obscure, but it has so much truth behind it. Like, I feel like it's one that, like, when you say it, you're like, okay, I know exactly what you mean. It's just not easy to put in words kind of thing. It's not. But trust me, once we go through the cases we're going to talk about today, you will absolutely follow this. So this week's topic is lock your door. So... Mm -hmm. You will learn a little bit more as to why you need to do that other than the obvious of, you know, so people can't come into your home. So you don't have like, I don't know, best case scenario, you go home after, I don't know, a day out and hear the washer running and (laughs) oh, looks like (laughs) someone who works there uh, decided to do some laundry in your apartment. So, But the thing is, you did lock your door. So that's a whole different situation. That's That's a whole nother thing. In all seriousness, like, it's so easy. Just simply lock your door. It keeps you safe. If someone comes in, it means they have a key, and hopefully they have a reason to be there. To do their laundry. (laughs) While you're not there. Or giving them permission. I'm not bitter. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, again, we'll get into a little bit more of what this topic means as we get into our cases. So, with that... Um, we're absolutely going to need a lot of wine for this episode. It's going to be very intense. And I know you guys have already seen from the title what we're going to be talking about. So some of y'all may already know why Lock Your Door is our theme. So Tyler, what wine did you pick? So the wine I chose for today's episode is the Manon Tempranillo from 2017. So it is another Spanish wine. I've kind of been on a Spanish wine kick uh, last few episodes, except for the most recent one yeah Uh, but i think i've realized that spanish wines are my favorite like i like spanish wines more than french or italian and like my favorite sauvignon blanc is a new zealand one but so i like specific wines from specific areas yeah but i think across the board spain's my go-to yeah i am spain we like this i am a huge huge fan of tempranillos so um i know that that's generally when i will have a spanish wine of tempranillos what i go for yeah Yeah, I mean, Tempranillo, I think, is internationally one of the most recognized wines from Spain, or one of the more common ones you see in international markets. Absolutely. And this wine in particular, it's from the Bodegas Mano a Mano winery in the Castilla region of Spain. Mm -hmm. And this region is one of the largest viticultural areas in the world, and it produces a shit ton of wine. (laughs) Really? The region extends to the immense autonomous region of Castilla la Mancha, which is south of Madrid. And it's primarily located on this high plateau in central Spain. And this wine in particular was rated in the top 5% of all wine from the Castilla region. Oh, wow. And they produce a ton of wine, so that should be a pretty big signal. That's a good wine. Yeah, and this one was um, around the $9, $10 mark. I got it from Central Market. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't find specific things that the winery said about this wine, but I did find a couple reviews that people who had it had submitted, and two of them I wanted to highlight that said, for this kind of money, 
It is absolutely gorgeous. Chocolate, cherry, oak, and coconut. Which, coconut is not something I think I've ever heard of in a wine, and I'm super excited. I haven't either. Like and that toasty, I... oaky... Mm. I can't wait for you to tell me if you taste coconut, because that sounds delicious. Can I see the bottle? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. She's like in a pretty red dress. Yeah, it's this simple label that's white. It just says Manon Tempranillo on it. And then there's a large image of like a line drawing woman in a red dress. I love it. I would absolutely also pick up that bottle. I totally see why you got it. Yeah. Spanish, Tempranillo, very cool label. Yeah. And the other review I wanted to highlight said that it's a mix of blackberries, sweet spices, coconut, and cinnamon, fresh and immediately appealing in the, they capitalized the, mouth, with balanced expression and intense flavor. So that's another person that said coconut. Yeah. Literally. So apparently (laughs) it's going to be coconutty somehow. Interesting. Um, And it pairs well with beef, lamb, veal, and poultry. So... Mm. Which really just makes me want a gyro. Oh my gosh, yep. I had one, like, last night? No, Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I, like, Uber Eats. Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ordered via Uber Eats um, a gyro with fries, and it was amazing. Nice. And also, this one is a screw top. Gotta love it. Always so much easier to get mm-hmm. into. Oh, it smells so good. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to pour this, and then you get into talking about your wine. Yes. <laughs> Fill it up to the top. Just kidding. <laughs> I filled it a normal amount this time. <laughs> okay, so I'm really excited about my wine as well. It is the 2017 Calligraphica Cabernet Sauvignon Zinfandel, which Ooh. is a blend I have never heard of nor had before. No. So. Oh my god, that label is intense. Isn't it beautiful? It's very Great Gatsby-like. Yeah, I get like Great Gatsby meets, I don't know, like Egypt, but not in a like papyrus font kind of Egypt. No, no. But it's really pretty. So this is the fourth wine from Calligraphica, which is an award-winning brand in California. Surprise. Um, Oh, okay. Calligraphica, California. Got it. Yes. They actually received 93 points out of 100. So like very highly rated in the 2017 International Women's Wine Competition for their 2016 Cabernet from Lodi. Mm. And so this one is a, is a little bit different. It's a different wine, but it's from this vineyard. However, this wine has won awards already as well. It got a silver medal in the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition this year. And last year, it got a silver medal in the Harvest Challenge. So I've got a lot of expectations for this wine. So Calligraphica wines are classic California wines created to represent all eras of winemaking in the state of California. And all of their wines are elegant, but very powerful and firmly rooted in new world traditions. So not old world. Mm -hmm. And this wine specifically is 86% Cabernet Sauvignon and 14% Zinfandel. 100% of the grapes are from California. And the ABV for this is actually a little bit low for a red. It's 13.9. So most of those California grapes did come from the Lodi and Sonoma regions. So you can definitely expect incredible flavors out of this. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, those are some of my favorite areas for California wines. So 
being a combination of Cabernet Sauvignon and Zinfandel, it's going to be a very full-bodied wine with medium acidity and sweetness and very fruit-forward. So these dark and juicy Cabernet Sauvignon grapes are going to elevate the very bold fruit flavor with some lively acidity and some oak notes. And then Zinfandel Mm -hmm. adds a little bit to the mid palate. So like right in the middle of your taste, you'll get some bright fruit flavors. The specific fruit notes are black currant, baking spices, and blackberry, which I think is very common to Cabernet Sauvignon and some Zinfandels as well. The tannins are supposed to be very ripe, so I will taste them, but they are textured. So I don't think they're going to bite as much as, for example, the Monastrella that we both had in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. It pairs well with some heavy meats like barbecue wings, ribs, and pulled pork. And any food that you have that has like a very intense um, flavor, like lots of spices, this wine will go perfectly with it. It goes very well with food. And it is a little bit more expensive than we normally spend. But again, with it being a Cabernet Sauvignon Zinfandel, I really, really wanted to try it. It's $27. Woo! Yeah, so this is probably the most expensive wine we've ever done on our podcast. Yeah, no, and I don't even get to taste it, so that's fine. I know, sorry about that. I um didn't do that on purpose, but it just happened. Uh-huh, sure. I will say, I really want to try a 100-point wine. Me too, and I don't even know what ones are. Well, I googled it and looked, and I mean, a lot of them are like $3,000 wines, and I'm like, okay. I mean, yeah. But there was one from Oregon that was 60 I mean, oh. it was a Pinot Noir, so I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Well, like, but from Oregon, like that's going to be phenomenal. Be, I mean, yeah. I feel like it's a great Pinot. It's going to be a great Pinot Noir if you're into Pinot Noirs. I'm not, so even a 100.1, I could be like, oh, this is a really good wine. Like, this is a good Pinot Noir, but it's not my thing. Oh, absolutely. I get that. I feel like even if you try a wine that is super highly rated, but it's not the type of wine that you enjoy... What's the difference in it being a hundred, like rated a hundred? Like you wouldn't, it, it's not your flavor profile. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I will say as you pour your wine, um, looking at mine as it's been aerating in this reminded me, um, and I don't know if I've actually told you yet, but a couple days ago, my lovely cat Skippy decided that he wanted to climb the wall in my apartment. Oh my god, are you serious? I, so, he did. He made it, like, most of the way up. What I'm sitting on my couch, <laughs> and I hear this noise to my left, and I look over, and Skippy's <laughs> clinging to... Because it's this part of the wall that, like, it juts out on the side of, like, my cabinets, where, like, my dining room goes into my kitchen. So it's... I guess he had something to grab onto, and he's just holding himself there, like, eight <laughs> feet off the ground. And I look at him, and I'm like, what? And then he hops down onto my uh, kitchen, like, peninsula, lands basically on my um, wine decanter, <gasps> which falls over and just, like, rolls a little bit. And I'm, like, looking at it, knowing that I'm too far away to do anything. And I, like, have enough time to stand up. It rolls onto the floor, shatters. Oh, and so if anyone God. is looking for a cat, let me know. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Skippy's great and he for free. No, just kidding. I love him. Oh, no. But he did break my wine decanter. This is literally one of the things that happens when you have pets. Like, it is so hard to have delicate things. Yeah. Breakable things. Oh, I'm so sorry. But I'm also disappointed you didn't get a picture of him on your wall. 
you at least would have had that. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I, I He'll climb the wall again. I, this also makes me wonder, what the hell does he do when I'm not here, when I'm at work? You need to get a pet camera. Is he climbing the wall? Oh, you have a pet camera. You need to watch your pet camera. True. Okay, but with that uh, story, we should cheers and um, drink this wine. I really want my wine. To Skippy. I'm <laughs> just kidding. To... <laughs> no, in honor of my wine decanter that I've only had for six months because I got it for Christmas. Yes, in honor. Cheers. Cheers. I'd pour one out, but... We don't do that's that. That's not what my wine decanter <laughs> would want. It's not. I'll pour one out into my mouth. <laughs> Tell me about yours, because... Wow. So, I 100% know what they mean by coconut. Really? It has that... Yeah, it's not sweet, but it's like a toasted coconut flavor like you'd get from, like, a coconut macaroon. Yum. Oh, yum. Like... It's that, like, toasty, that honestly, I think probably comes from the oakiness. Like, it's it's very similar to, like, an oaky profile from an oaky one. It's really good Tempranillo. This one is amazing. And one thing that I love about Tempranillos is they pack all those big, bold flavors that you'd expect from something much heavier, like a cab. But it's a much more middle-of-the-road wine when it comes to, like, how heavy and tannic it is yeah. so it's very easy to drink and have with food and it still packs that punch of flavor yeah so good um that's one thing i love about tempranillos is that they're medium bodied and sometimes you know even for someone like me who loves the big bold reds sometimes i need something that's nowhere near as light as a pinot noir but not as heavy as a cab and i think a tempranillo is one of those perfect middle ones for me yeah, I think, I mean, the more I think about it, when it comes to a red varietal, I think Tempranillo is probably my favorite. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely up there with a really good cab. Oh, yeah. But I feel like, and maybe this is just, this isn't true and it's just my perspective, but I feel like a Tempranillo is always a, a safe one. Like, I've never definitely. had a Tempranillo that I'm like, oh, hell no. And I have had a couple cabs that I was like, uh-uh, no, this bad. I have to, but that's not what's happening right now. I know, I can see your eyes are like rolling in the back of your head as you take sips of this wine. Guys, this may be one of the best wines I've done on this entire podcast. So first of all, you can smell like the baking spices and the oakiness. And on that first sip, it's nice and smoky and Mm. it is extremely textured, like It has a very long finish, and it's not as fruity and sweet as the description made me believe, but it is absolutely full. Like, this is a full-bodied wine. This would be fantastic with a steak. Oh my god, like steak and potatoes. Like, this would absolutely complement a really big meal like that, but I just can't get over this, like, oak notes and the smokiness that surprised me because tobacco was not really listed as something that was going to be in this wine. But, oh my gosh, the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Zinfandel have married to create this amazing wine baby that could possibly be one of my favorite wines now that I've ever had. I mean, it sounds incredible. Another flavor that I'm getting out of this one is almost, it tastes like the smell of cedar, if that makes any mm. sense at all. But it's 
It's definitely That'll very... That'll keep the moths away. It's, <laughs> it's definitely very earthy. Yeah, all the moths that are in my stomach. It's very earthy. It's got some cedar in addition to that oak, uh, which actually is probably coming from those baking spices. Just like maybe like yeah. cinnamon type something. But okay. Yeah. I'm huh. sorry. I'm obsessed. Obsessed. No, I know. I will say one thing on my wine is I'm not getting any of the berry flavors that were mentioned. See, I'm not Cherry either. I can kind of see, but like the blackberry and stuff, I'm like, no. I get the heavy coconut, I get the cinnamon, the oaky, but it's not a fruity tempranillo. I also am not getting the fruits because I mentioned black currant, blackberry. No, the oak and the spices are overpowering the fruit, which I honestly mm-hmm. prefer. So I'm very happy with this wine. Also, before we transition topics while we're still on the wine, I just want to let y'all know that, uh, but I definitely just spent 200 bucks buying wine. Um, I don't know why it took me this long to realize that I live in Texas and I can get wine shipped to me. Yeah, I don't know why it took you that long either. And the dumb thing is I've had wine shipped to me before, so just let me live my truth. Well, a lot of states let you get wine shipped. There's just definitely a handful that don't. Yeah, Oklahoma being one of them. Which is why we never think of it. Yeah. But yeah, so I... I've talked many times about the Saracena Vineyards in Hopland, California, Mm -hmm. and how the Saracena Cabernet is one of my favorite wines. No, not one of. It is my favorite wine I've ever had. And so I just bought um, one of each wine they had. (laughs) There's an unoaked Shard, a Sauvignon Blanc, a Malbec, a Zinfandel, and then their Cabernet Sauvignon. And I was like, one of each. So if there is a wine that we mention that, I mean, for, well, actually, no, we have quite a few international listeners, too. So if there's a wine that we mentioned and you're like, ooh, I want that, and you can get it shipped to you, do it. And if you didn't think our obsession with wine was real, now you know it is, because $200 is a lot of money. You can get a lot of things for $200, but I'm still in the camp that those five bottles of wine are worth it. (laughs) I know. I had to be like, Brittany, do I do it? Brittany, do I do it? And she was like, yes. You do. Absolutely. Like, I don't, what's the, what's the question? I don't understand. Um. It's like, okay. <laughs> so if um, the shipment says it will be here in three to four days. However, um, one thing to note, if you're ordering wine in the summer yes. or in hot climates, most wineries will hold back shipments if it's too hot outside. Just so the wine that you're getting delivered to your door is top quality mm-hmm. the wine that they would want to be serving so it can be delayed up to like three weeks yeah. and know that going into it well and that's true because the heat will ruin the bottle which and that's also true don't leave wine in your car in your hot car during this summer absolutely like if you go buy wine bring it inside like i'm not saying a bottle of white wine is going to ruin if you leave it on the counter it won't you just pop it in the fridge when no. you're ready but if you leave it in your hot car, and we know how hot, especially here in Texas, the interior of cars get, it will ruin it. And it might not taste bad, but it won't taste like it's supposed to taste. And you... Yeah, it definitely, it dulls the flavors. Worst case scenario, it can almost vinegar your wine. So yeah. take it out your car. And that is just a tidbit of the type of things you're going to be able to get in our wine reviews, which I just realized. Boom. That's exactly what we're yes. going to be doing. But with that, we've got our wine. I'm almost done with my first glass already. But we've got our wine. We've talked about our topic, lock your fucking door. 
And yep. now it's time for you to get into your case. I don't think I'm ready for this, but I'm going to have to be. Yeah, uh, I'm not ready, but um, I'm going to jump into my case, which is the case of Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker. And Here we y'all. go. So the sources that I used in this case were the Crime Museum, Encyclopedia Britannica, which, side note, if you, like, done enough fucked up shit that you're literally in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you're an asshole. <laughs> uh, I also used All That's Interesting, Murderpedia, CNN, and Wikipedia. And literally, there are about a bazillion sources on Richard Ramirez, so... Oh, yeah, it was difficult. There's also a great documentary that you can find on YouTube that's called, like, Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. It's about 45 minutes. Highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. I don't know who it's by. Like, it's it's a real documentary. It's not just a YouTube video. Yeah. So Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas in 1960. And growing up, he was a troubled kid. Uh, he was often abused by his dad and... He even sustained two serious head injuries, after which he would experience very frequent epileptic seizures. There's always a head injury involved. That is, like, such a red flag. Yeah. And just as one of his avenues to escape his violent father, when he was 12, he began hanging out with his older cousin, Mike, who was also known as uh, Miguel in some of the sources. Yeah. And Mike had just returned from fighting in Vietnam. So he would tell Richard gruesome stories and show him pictures of the Vietnamese women that he would rape, torture, and kill, and even included a photo where he was posing with one of the women's severed heads. Oh my god, that is so many levels of messed up. Yeah, so Mike also introduced Ramirez to drugs, which wound up resulting in Ramirez committing some petty crimes. And also, because of all this rebellion, he became pretty alienated from his parents. So now the one really influential person in his life is a monster. Yeah. The first really serious crime that Richard Ramirez was involved in was the murder of his cousin's wife. And although Mike was the one who murdered her, shooting her in the head... Oh, God. 13-year-old Richard Ramirez was at the scene of the crime, and her blood even splattered on his face. Oh, so he wasn't just there. He was right there. He was right there. Like, he wasn't involved-involved in that, like, he wasn't wasn't an accessory, but he was there-there. Well, and this is when he's in his very formative years with the person who's raising him, who he looks up to. I can see, again, why he gets into the things that he gets into, where he's obviously, mm-hmm. that's just what he knows. Murder is yeah. what he knows, and really, really messed up things is what he knows. Oh, yeah. So the shooting turned Ramirez from a scared, abused young boy into this hardened, sullen man. And he began using LSD and cultivating his interest in Satanism, which he would go on to practice throughout his life. When he was 13? When he was 13. Wow. Hearing about children getting into such hardcore drugs always breaks my heart. Yeah. LSD's like... That's like a scary drug. Yeah. 
LSD at 13. That's horrifying. It is. Like, that's not, you know, he introduced him to weed. Or even like, and it can still lead to some bad things, alcohol at 13. This is LSD. Like, that's, that's just, it's a lot. So, moving forward, still under his older cousin's influence, because Mike had been found not guilty in this shooting and only had to spend four years in an asylum before being released, Ramirez developed an obsession with the same kind of sexual violence that Mike had inflicted on the women in his photos. And this obsession almost reached its pinnacle when Ramirez was arrested for attempted rape. The charges, though, were later dropped when the woman declined to testify against him, but by this point, Ramirez had developed a taste for blood, and he was searching for an outlet for it. Oh, God. In 1977, so he's 17, uh, he was sent to a juvenile detention center for a series of petty crimes, and in addition... Later, he was also put on probation for marijuana possession in 1982, when he was an adult. Mm -hmm. But soon after being released from juvie when he was 17, he dropped out of high school and moved to California. And he continued to commit crimes such as burglary, he got caught for possession of cocaine, as well as a car theft charge, which was the charge that gave him a jail sentence. That wasn't that long. It was, I think it was like a year. So he's just really building himself a record. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the first couple ones were on, you know, his juvenile record before he was 18. The last one's not so much. So on June 28th, 1984, Ramirez committed his first murder, or at least his first known murder, that of 79-year-old Jenny Vilkow. Authorities found her body in her bed. She'd been brutally raped, and her throat was slashed so deeply that she was almost decapitated. God. Oh. I hate hearing that. Those, just because the amount of force that is required to cut that deep is so terrifying. I know we've mentioned it, or I know I've mentioned it before, but like in ballistics tests, they'll often uh, simulate an adult human neck with thick like thumb width ropes like you know a bundle of ropes in the ballistics gel and stuff just to show how hard it is or how hard something has to go through to cut the head off basically yeah like it's so much force yeah so much force that requires so much rage to do oh god yeah um her apartment showed signs of forced entry And there were items that were missing as well. Uh, Ramirez would then apparently wait some eight months before he would resume killing again. So it's like he added in this padded time to help not get caught. Because if there's time in between, like a big amount of time, it's maybe not immediately identified as a serial killer. Maybe. I don't know. I think also a big part of it was it was his first one because... As we're soon going to find out, once he started back, he did not stop. He just kept going and going. On March 17th of 1985, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her home. He shot her before entering the house. And inside was Dale Okazaki, who was 34. And Ramirez immediately 
shot and killed them. So it's like he has no care of age, of gender. He is just killing. Yeah. So Hernandez survived. The bullet had ricocheted off the keys that she'd held in her hand as she lifted her arm to protect herself, which is so terrifying how close she came. They ricocheted off her keys. Yeah. Which are so small. Uh, Within an hour after killing Okazaki, Ramirez struck again in the Monterey Park area, and he jumped 30-year-old Sai Lian Yu and pulled her out of her car onto the road. Oh my god! Like, they were driving, it was a stoplight or something, and he just pulled her out of the car? I think she was parked, like, like she was in a parking lot in her car. Oh my god, still, that's terrifying. You think you're in your safe space. He shot her several times and fled, and a policeman found her still breathing, but she died before the ambulance was able to arrive. And... These two attacks occurring on the same day, so close to each other. I mean, it was like an hour after. Yeah. This blew up the media attention. Definitely. And caused panic and fear among the public. And the news media dubbed this attacker, who had been described as having long curly hair, bulging eyes, and wide-spaced rotting teeth, as the walk-in killer, or... The Valley Intruder. Which, just side note, the Night Stalker is a much better name than the Walk-In Killer or the Valley Intruder, but we're not there yet. Yep. We're just getting started. On March 27th, Ramirez shot Vincent Zazara, who is 64, and his wife, 44-year-old Maxine. Maxine's body was mutilated with several stab wounds and a T was carved into her left breast, and her eyes were gouged out. Thankfully, the autopsy did determine that these mutilations were post-mortem. I mean, as awful as this is, thank God that she didn't feel it. Uh, Didn't feel those. I agree. Um, Ramirez had left footprints in the flower beds, which police photographed and cast, but this was virtually the only evidence that police had at the time. Bullets that were found at the scene matched those from his previous attacks, and police realized at this point that a serial killer was on the loose. And unfortunately, the bodies of Vincent and Maxine were discovered by their son, Peter. Oh, God. That is absolutely... Oh, I don't even have the words. Like, that is horrible. Yeah. Uh, To just come home and see something like this. No one should have yeah. to experience anything like that, let alone the fact that your parents were murdered. The fact that you found them is just like so much salt in a wound. Like, that's not fair. Yeah. So by this time, a multi-county police investigation had begun. Law enforcement agencies worked throughout the month of April when there were no additional attacks by Ramirez. You know, this is one of those instances where the counties did come together and recognize that they had someone murdering and killing in multiple counties. And it's good because I feel like more often than not, it's the the opposite where the counties don't come together or and and not in a not Mm -hmm. trying just in a not knowing because it's different counties yeah well and i think because these counties are near each other and also due to the fact that it's the los angeles area that is true there's a lot of fucking people like i feel like they probably have more systems in place that other counties and cities in the u.s should 
really look at. Well... Because you're right. I mean, there are way too many cases where there's a serial killer and because they move county lines or they move, you know, metropolitan areas, it's not found to be a serial killer until way too late. Right. And a lot of it is because, you know, they cross state lines, which that's even another Mm -hmm. level of how to come together and why there should be a database Mm -hmm. of like all the murders. Like we talked about a few episodes ago, like the fact that there's not blows my mind. Yeah. So about two months after he killed the Zazada couple, Ramirez attacked 66 year old Harold Wu, who was shot in the head and his wife, 63 year old Jean Wu, who was punched, bound and violently raped. Oh, For unknown reasons, he decided to let her live, but his attacks were now in full throttle. This was the beginning of the start of his rampage, and he would soon be known as the Night Stalker by the media. Which is one of the names that just sends chills down your spine. Yeah. So on May 14th of 85, Ramirez returned to the Monterey Park area and entered the home of 66-year-old Bill Doy and his disabled wife, 56-year-old Lillian. He surprised Doy in his bedroom and shot him in the face with a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol as Doy went for his own handgun. And after beating this mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, and raped her after he ransacked their home of valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital. On the night of May 29th, 1985, so two weeks later, Mm -hmm. Ramirez drove a stolen Mercedes to Monrovia and stopped at the house of 83-year-old Mabel Ma Bell and her sister, 81-year-old Florence Nettie Lang, After finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, and then bludgeoned and bound Belle before using an electrical cord to shock her. Oh, wow, that is extremely brutal. Richard Ramirez probably, at least right now that I can think of, takes the cake as the most brutal serial killer I have ever done. He just gave zero fucks. Like, it yeah. was literally any anyone he could kill, he would kill, and he found such entertainment and joy in it. So after raping Lang, he used Belle's lipstick to draw a pentagram on Lang's thigh, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. And two days later, they were discovered, and they were found alive and comatose. Oh my god. But... Belle would later die of her injuries. Yeah, these two women in their 80s had been beaten close to death with hammers. Belle had been shocked with an electrical cord. They're both bound, and they survived for two days. And Langs survived the attack. The next day, he drove this same car to Burbank and snuck into the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. And at gunpoint... He bound her and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs and ransacked the house. He wound up releasing Kyle so she would show him where the family's valuables were, and he then sodomized her repeatedly and also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him 
telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. Which, oh whether she believed him or not, I assume she did, he'd done before. Right. You know, that wasn't an empty threat. It was not. He had done that. He fled the scene after retrieving Kyle's son from the closet and then binding both of them together again with handcuffs. So the two of them did survive. I will say at least there are some survivors. I mean, what they had to experience yeah. is excruciating and horrendous, yeah. but I'm glad that you have some survivors throughout this. Yeah. I mean, the the torture that he inflicted on all of his victims is horrifying and mind-numbing. It is. On the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove a stolen Toyota to Arcadia, randomly selected the house of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon, and after entering this widowed grandmother's home, he found her asleep in her bedroom, and he bludgeoned her unconscious with a lamp, and then repeatedly stabbed her with a 10-inch butcher knife he found in her kitchen, and she was found dead at the crime scene. On July 5th, three days later, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. The fact that he is not only going all over the place, but also his M.O. and his method, like everything's changing with all of these crimes. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact that he's breaking into their homes, he's using guns, knives, knives he brought, knives he found, tire irons, rope, electrical cord. Like there is no limit to what he will do. And it's almost as if it's, you know, his M.O. is, is killing. It's not... It's not how he's doing it, it's just that he's doing it. Yeah, he wants to kill and rape, and he'll break into people's houses at night, but everything else is a variable. Exactly. So after searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez attempted to strangle her with a telephone cord. But he was startled when sparks started shooting out of the cord, and when she began to breathe, Ed He fled the house, believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. And Bennett survived this attack, which wound up requiring 478 stitches to close all the lacerations on her scalp. Oh my god, and I also just remembered that he's a Satanist, and like why Mm -hmm. he may have that reaction and thought to her breathing again, which... Yeah. For a lot of his survivors, it sounds like he didn't necessarily mean to leave them alive. He thought they were dead. Uh, yeah. Like, especially the two older women. Like, he thought he'd done them in, so the fact that they survived was not his intention. Yeah, exactly. I think he intended his kill count to be much higher. Yes. So, now on July 7th, two days later, Ramirez broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson in Monterey Park, and after finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death using his fists and kicking her in the head. Oh, God. So he didn't even have a weapon this time. Yeah. And a shoe print from an Avia sneaker was found imprinted on her face. So after cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed her at gunpoint and attempted to rape her, stole her jewelry, 
And when she swore to him that he'd taken everything of value, he told her to swear on Satan. On July 20th of 85, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving his stolen Toyota to Glendale, and he chose the home of 66-year-old Layla Needing and her husband, 68-year-old Maxon. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with the machete and then killed them both with shots to the head. He further mutilated their bodies with the machete before robbing the house of all valuables. His violence is just accelerating. Like, each of these Mm -hmm. murders is more and more violent, more and more gruesome. So much horror and rage. A machete. Like, that is terrifying. And after quickly selling off the stolen items from the needing residence, he drove to Sun Valley. Um, And by the way, all of these are happening. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but all these crimes are happening in California, mostly in the Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. Um, At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of the Kovanath family and he murdered... Chainarung Kovanath by shooting him in the head with a handgun, killing him instantly. And then he repeatedly raped Somkid Kovanath, beating her and then sodomizing her. He bound the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dragging Somkid around the house to show him where any valuables were, which he would then steal. During all of this, he demanded that some kid swear on Satan that she wasn't hiding any money from him. So that's becoming one of his things. Swearing on Satan. His victim swear on yeah. Satan. On August 6th of 1985, Ramirez drove to Northridge and broke into the home of 27-year-olds Chris and Virginia Peterson. Ramirez crept into their bedroom, which startled Virginia and prompted him to shoot her in the face with his twenty-five caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the temple and attempted to flee, but Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape, and the couple survived their injuries. Even though they were both shot in the head, like face and temple? Yeah. They both survived. You're like, I know someone can survive a gunshot wound to the head, but the fact that both of them did, that's fascinating. It, it again, it blows my mind, the human body. Like, the fact that someone could, like, trip and hit their head on the sidewalk in just a perfect way, die right there. Someone could get shot through the brain and live to tell about it. I know. It's always... Very interesting to me how, we talked about this earlier, how it's difficult to die, but also really easy to die. And mm-hmm. and both of those are true statements. And it's scary. Yeah. And like, but it's proof of like, you shouldn't walk around and live your life being afraid to die. That's just a waste of time. Because also, eventually no. all of us die. Like, that's reality. Yeah. But... We're all going to die and make the best of life while you can. God, I mean, it sounds depressing as shit, but... But it's not. I mean, it's, it's true. It's about living your life and not living your life in fear. So two days after that, on August 8th, Ramirez drove another stolen car to Diamond Bar and chose the home of 27-year-old Sakina Abawath 
and her husband, 31-year-old Elias Avila. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house, went to the master bedroom, and he instantly killed Elias with a shot to the head. He handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal locations of the family's jewelry, and then he brutally raped and sodomized her. So now it's like his murders are becoming very similar, very repetitive. He's doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he even repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan Mm -hmm. that she wouldn't scream during the assault. And when the couple's three-year-old son heard the commotion and entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then continued to rape Sakina in front of him. Um, After Ramirez left the house, Sakina untied her son and went to the neighbors for help. So she and her son did survive. And Ramirez, who at this time had been following the media coverage of his crimes, left the Los Angeles area and headed to the San Francisco Bay area. On August 18th, Ramirez entered the home of 66-year-old Peter and 62-year-old Barbara Pan. He shot Peter in the temple while he was asleep. Oh my. And he then beat and raped Barbara before he shot her in the head and left her for dead. At the crime scene, he used lipstick to draw a pentagram and write the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. So when it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the Night Stalker crime scenes matched the crime scene at the Pan's house, the then mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, divulged this information in a televised press conference. And this leak infuriated the detectives of the case because they knew whoever was doing this would be following media coverage and this would give the killer opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Yeah. And Ramirez, who had been watching the press, took the opportunity to drop his size 11 and a half Avia sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. Of course. He stayed in the area for a few days and then headed back to Los Angeles. Yeah, I can see why the detectives were infuriated, but I also see why the mayor felt the need to warn the people. Like, this is... Yeah, the the Night Stalker's here. Yeah, this is very much one of those, well, I, I see and agree with both sides, and each way has a negative outcome. Either yeah. the mayor doesn't warn the city and more murders happen because people are unaware of the threat, or what happened, and the police being frustrated because Ramirez was then able to destroy evidence because he knew yeah. he'd been discovered in the area. So it's, it is yeah. literally a lose-lose situation. On August 24th, which one thing I want to note, we're at August 24th, and this renewed spree of murders only started in May. All of this has happened just over the summer. How terrifying of a time to be mm-hmm. living in these areas. Yeah, because, I mean, he did... um, How would you sleep? Yeah. I mean, his first murder was the year before in June, and then he waited until March. But then his next crimes were in May, and it's been, like... One right after the other. Yeah, just continually. Because now it's only August. It's only been a few months, and all of this death and destruction is in his wake. Yeah. So on the 24th of August, 
Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen Toyota to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation in Rosarito Beach in Mexico. And Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. And thinking that there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents, and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and was able to note the color, make, and style of the car, as well as get a partial license plate number. Romero then contacted the police with this information, believing that, you know, his son had just chased away a thief. Not a, not realizing that he probably saved the entire family from getting murdered. Not probably, definitely. He definitely yeah. saved the entire I mean, family from getting murdered. Yeah, but also 13-year-old knowing to get the color, make, doesn't know the model, but can get the style, as well as a license plate number. He was smart. He knew. You know, it's one of those things that we all like to think that in a situation we would be able to be observant, but sometimes the adrenaline and the fear is so strong that you can't even see what's on your left and right. Yeah. And so... Being able to capture that information is not something everyone can do, so it really is impressive. Yeah. So after this encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, 29-year-old Inez Erickson, through a back door. He entered their bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his handgun. He then shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson Ramirez told her that he was the Night Stalker, and he forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties he found in the closet. After stealing what he could find, he dragged Erickson to another room to rape and sodomize her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry, and Again, making her swear on Satan that there wasn't any more after he'd gotten all of it. This fucking guy. Oh my god. Before leaving the house, he told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. And after he left, Erickson was able to untie herself and went to a neighbor's house to get help for her severely injured fiancé. And surgeons were able to remove two of the bullets from his head, and Bill Carnes survived his injuries. It's just really fortunate that there are so many people that he's tried to kill that he hasn't been able to. But also, it's so sick how proud he clearly is of being known as the Night Stalker. And, like, he feels like he's famous and people know him and people fear him. And he craves it. 100%. 100%. So Erickson was able to give a detailed description of the attacker to investigators and police were also able to obtain a cast of ramirez's footprint from the romero house the stolen car that the romeros had called them about was identified and found on august 28th in wilshire center los angeles and police were able to obtain a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror despite ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of all his fingerprints And this print was positively identified as belonging to Richard Ramirez, who had been described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas 
with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and drug violations. I mean, so of course they had his fingerprint on file. I'm glad they finally yeah, were I able mean, to he... find one at a crime scene. Yeah. To just pin yeah. everything on him. Because they know these are connected. They finally... And they finally got that missing piece of evidence that they were looking for. They finally know who he is. So law enforcement officials decided to release to the media a mugshot of Ramirez from a December 12th of 84 arrest for car theft. And the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. He is literally so scary looking. Like... Oh, he's terrifying. Like... He is... If someone explained to me all these crimes, and I had no idea who, that is who I would picture in my I know. mind. He just looks like pure evil. Like, everything about him is evil. Like, I feel like if I met him in the street, I'd be like, oh, fuck no. Even if he was a great guy, or whatever. He looks like the Night Stalker. I know, and I know we've talked about how murderers don't necessarily have a look, but this dude looks like a murderer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very true. Although I will say, he very much has, like, rock and roller hair. It's, like, long and yeah. curly, kind of the mullet going on, like, and there are some pictures of him in, like, sunglasses, and it's just like... Yeah. But he scares me a lot. Yeah, he's a scary fucking dude. So two days after this press conference, his mugshots were broadcast on national TV and printed on the cover of Every single major newspaper in California. The whole state? So, like, literally, there is nowhere he can go. So, on August 31st, when Richard Ramirez walked into a convenience store in Los Angeles, he didn't notice the group of police officers that were standing on the street or the stacks of newspapers that were on the racks outside. Sounds like someone who's being real oblivious. When you know you're a wanted man. I mean, he doesn't know that they have his fingerprint, but... but I think he must not have seen this announcement from the like police. Like, the one thing he didn't see. He'd been watching yeah. all the other media coverage, and he, like, misses this. Yeah. Thank God. So it wasn't until- Thank God, though. Glad he missed it. Yeah. So it wasn't until he looked out the window and saw a group of elderly women that were fearfully pointing him out to a police officer that he realized the face on the cover of those newspapers was his. And so he- quickly fled he noped the fuck out of there and the ensuing chase involved seven police cars and a helicopter tracking ramirez through the streets and alleyways of los angeles eventually a group of bystanders finally caught him and tackled him and started beating him with a metal pipe oh my god i just remembered this part i forgot that it was civilians who came and just like beat the shit out of him because they had all been yeah. fearing him for so long that they were like, uh-uh, this is, yeah, we're taking care of this because we're not letting this guy get away. No way. And they're they're at their homes watching news coverage, watching this chase, being like, oh, fuck, he's coming into our neighborhood. Not today, Satan, not today. And it was to the point that by the time police arrived, Ramirez was thanking them for arresting him because this group was gonna fucking. Kill and it's him. surprising I'm they glad didn't. They didn't. It's 
Yeah, I'm glad they didn't. But when I was doing my research, I read that and I was like, you know, I'm not a fan of vigilante justice, but yes. I know. I feel like there are seldom times when you cheer for it. And this is absolutely one of those times. Yes. So after this dramatic chase with an even more dramatic ending, the Night Stalker, who was the vicious serial killer and rapist who had been terrorizing Los Angeles residents for over a year, had finally been caught. In just over one year, Ramirez had murdered over a dozen people and tortured an additional 25. Oh my god, that's so many. So... The trial of Richard Ramirez was one of the most difficult and longest criminal trials in American history. Oh. Nearly 1,600 prospective jurors were interviewed. More than 100 witnesses testified. And while a number of witnesses had a difficult time recalling certain facts four years after the crimes, others were quite certain of the identity of Richard Ramirez. During the trial, on August 3rd of 1988, some of the jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a medical... medical detector? Like, "Mm, you had surgery recently. Ooh, bitch, you have the flu. (laughs) It's a really sassy medical detector. Ooh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside the courtroom, and intensive searches were conducted on the people entering. Then just a little over a week later, on August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, didn't arrive in the courtroom. Oh my god, so yeah, they were worried about her life. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. Oh my god! The jury was obviously terrified and could not help but wonder if Ramirez was somehow behind it, you know, responsible for this. Yeah. The jury was also wondering if, you know, if Ramirez did this, is he able to reach us too? It was found out that Ramirez was not responsible for her death and she had been shot and killed by her boyfriend who later shot and killed himself with the same gun in a hotel. Literally, the dude but, picked a, a wow. Like, yeah. oh my god. But the alternative juror who replaced her was too frightened of everything to return home. So she wouldn't go home? Like, got a hotel. Yeah. Yeah, uh, fair. Literally, you're replacing a juror mm-hmm. who is murdered in the middle of the biggest murder trial that's hit, you know, mm-hmm. the area. Yeah, you get a hotel. And you probably switch rooms every night because... Yeah. So after many delays... Because remember, he was captured in 1985. In 1989, after it had become the most expensive trial in California state history, Richard Ramirez was convicted of 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. I guarantee his numbers should have been probably two to three times those amount for every one of those convictions. Yeah. Like, those those numbers well, seem low from what you told me earlier. Yeah, especially around the sexual assaults and the attempted murders and stuff. I'm like, no, there's so much yeah. more. But he was sentenced to die in 
California's gas chambers. But when he heard this, his remarks were, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See in Disneyland. He gave no shits about any of this. You want to know something else fucked up? By the time of the trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. And since 1985, so since he got captured basically that year, freelance magazine editor Doreen Leoy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. And in 1988, he proposed to her. What? And on August 3rd of 1996, the two of them were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. I'm sorry, that is stupid as shit. That is dumb. Like, I... It is one thing to, you know, feel like you have a significant other or or someone that you've heard about that you feel is innocent. This dude is Mm -hmm. no way, shape, or form saying he's innocent. So she's like, oh my god, yes. That serial killer? My husband. Like, what the hell? Yeah. No. Yeah. She even said that she would commit suicide when he was executed so they could be together forever. Yeah. Okay, well, whatever. There is literally no part of me that can comprehend any of this. I don't get it. Same. So because of the depth of this case, which included 50,000 pages of trial records, the courts couldn't hear his appeal until 2006, which effectively stayed his execution. Wow, yeah. Because if he has a pending appeal, you can't execute him in the middle of that. During the time between his trial and his appeal... Richard Ramirez was diagnosed with B-cell lymphoma, and during the first round of appeals in 2006, the courts upheld the original ruling and sentence, but Ramirez was able to stall it again by submitting more requests and more appeals for the next seven years, until he finally succumbed to his lymphoma and died in prison in 2013. You're telling me that Richard Ramirez was alive until 2013, and I somehow didn't know that? Oh, yeah. He only died like six years ago. And he died from his cancer. He had been on death row. Okay, so he was 53, and he'd been on death row for 23 years. Almost as long as he had been out of prison. And not once during those 23 years did he ever admit to wrongdoing or express remorse. Well, that's because he is literally one of the biggest monsters. Like, Richard Ramirez is, like, Hitler's pal. Like, they're both that sadistic and horrible. I mean, we've we've talked about some really heinous serial killers yeah. in this podcast. Richard Ramirez is one of, if not the worst. I mean, there are people, Gary Ridgway, for example, who have killed a lot more and i don't know i hate serial killers like that is a topic that i do not enjoy Well, and like also bundy was someone who had no remorse and who just finally started you know saying oh yeah i did it when he was still gonna be executed like it didn't save him from that but they're so messed up and like i know with a lot of serial killers there is a level of mental illness but with a lot of them there's not like that's not yeah that's not a prerequisite for being a serial killer to have a mental illness it's no and one thing to note about this entire series of events that draws it back to the topic that I really wanted to hammer home is that 
the vast majority of his victims had one thing in common, and that was an unlocked door. Richard Ramirez preyed on suburbia households that didn't lock their doors at night because you don't need to. We live in the fucking neighborhood. There's kids who ride bikes on the street and do other 80s things. This place is safe. We don't have to lock our doors. Never the case. No matter where you live, lock your door. Lock your fucking doors. Why you... I saw this meme um, a long time Mm -hmm. ago. I don't know how long ago. That was just talking about how... The reason we don't see as many millennials, um, or as many, like, millennial serial killers are because millennials not only lock their doors, but don't answer the door. Someone comes to the door, and I'm like, if I'm not waiting on food, I'm not answering it. You can come back later. I know. It's like, text me. I don't know who you are. And then it it went into the joke of, like, a baby boomer serial killer being like, kids these days not answering the doors. I laughed. Yeah, and then going and looking at the next door, hoping that someone will answer. But, yes. So, super fucked up case. And I'm so glad that I went first, so I still have, like, half a bottle of wine. Well, I'm really glad that you have some wine left, because you are absolutely going to need it for this case. And uh, I'm yeah. really glad, honestly, that I'm going second, because I needed this wine to prepare me for the things I'm about to say. Well, then that was perfect. So, one thing I do want to have a warning for listeners. This case I'm about to talk about is not for the faint of heart. It is probably one of the most disturbing and graphic cases that we've ever covered. So, just know that you have been warned. I probably should have had a similar warning before mine, but sorry. So, the case that I did in the lock your door theme is Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. So I literally, have n- I've never heard of this one. Consider yourself fortunate until right now. Well, I'm literally about an hour away from knowing everything, yeah. so. So the sources I used were actually very similar to the ones you did. Um, I used All That's Interesting, Historic Mysteries, Crime Museum, and the New York Daily News. So as you know, most every serial killer has some form of disturbia. They're disturbed. Yeah. But Richard Chase was particularly disturbed, and he was known as the Vampire of Sacramento. So when we think about serial killers, there's definitely like a scale of disturbedness, and Richard Chase was definitely towards the top of this scale. So... Oh, God. Prepare yourself. So Richard Chase was born on May 23rd, 1950. And he was a very troubled child, and a lot of this was a large part because of his abusive parents. He showed very early signs of his future behavior in the form of arson, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals. And if you remember... Yeah, the triangle thing. Yes, yes. It is the McDonald triad. This is something that we talked about in episode one, and I think we've touched on it a couple of times, but this is the triad of psychopathy, and it was proposed by psychiatrist J.M. McDonald in 1963. And Chase fit all of these characteristics in his youth. When he was an adolescent, he did turn to alcohol and drugs, which quickly turned into a substance abuse problem. And he was mostly smoking marijuana, but also using LSD. 
again, I mean, I guess it must have been more common. Well, this is this is I the mean, 60s. Yeah, I mean, I know it was more common in the 60s and 70s, but I, I guess it must have just been more accessible. I don't know. I, you know, I guess the today version might be, you know, he was smoking marijuana, but also took Oxycontin or something, yeah. which I guess if I heard of a 16 year old killer who smoked weed and took opioids, I today I wouldn't be like, oh my God, that drug because of the time frame of when it's happening. Pre- so I guess that makes yeah, sense. No, well, and especially with how common prescription drugs and prescription drug abuse is today. Yeah. So I guess, you know, looking at LSD and acid through today's lens is like, whoa, holy shit, that's a leap. But I guess looking at it through a lens of the 70s and 60s, yes, but also no. Right. Well, there was a slew of other odd behaviors that Chase did that pointed to some potential trouble. He developed hypochondria because of his drug and alcohol abuse, which caused him to tell doctors that his pulmonary artery had been stolen, completely stolen. That's, no, you don't survive that. He would complain on occasion that his heart stopped beating. He thought that he lacked vitamin C, and so he would hold oranges up to his head with the belief that his brain would absorb the nutrients. He could also, like, eat a strawberry once in a while, but that's fine. He even shaved his head because he believed that the bones in his skull had become detached and were moving around. And so he he thought shaving his head was a way that he could monitor it, you know, be able to see them, be able to to see when they're they're moving. That's, um, no. But one of the most disturbing traits that Chase had is that he was obsessed with blood. He believed that everybody was after him. In particular, the Nazis, the FBI, and space aliens. The big three. <laughs> I mean, literally, think of any any movie made today. The big enemy is probably either the FBI, aliens, or Nazis. And he was afraid of every one of them and felt that they were out to get him. So now he works for Paramount. <laughs> he thought that their weapon was an innocent-looking item that everyone has. The soap dish in the bathroom. It was there in the soap dish that he believed there was a hidden secret poison that the Nazis, the FBI, or aliens had put there that was turning his blood to powder. Um, so did he, like, not shower then? Like, not use soap? Did he just smell real bad? Um, probably. Or did he continue just thinking he was giving himself powder blood? Well, it's not that he was giving himself powder blood, it's that his blood was turning into powder, so... The only thing that he knew to do to combat this was fresh blood. He thought that was the only thing that could save him and cure him. Oh, fuck no. He was eventually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, and he was institutionalized in the mid-1970s after he was found injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. Oh my god, how did he not die from that? Well, it made him very sick because it poisoned his blood. And it It took a while for doctors to find out that that's what happened, but he thought, again, he had to use fresh blood to replenish his own because his blood was turning to powder. Wow. So when he was institutionalized is when he first got his vampire nickname, and the staff dubbed him Dracula. 
due to this infatuation that he had with blood. Nurses and fellow inmates were terrified of him, and he was frequently found with blood smeared on his face, which he claimed was from cutting himself shaving. However, he was actually biting the heads off of birds and sucking their blood. He would grab them out the window and bite their heads off. Oh, what the fuck? Despite all of this, in 1977, doctors declared him well enough to go about in society if he was on his meds and released him to the care of his mother. He ended up moving into a shared apartment with friends, but they eventually grew really fed up of his behavior, particularly that he was high all the time and he would constantly walk around naked, even when they had company over. So they asked, oh, they asked Chase no. to leave. They were like, get out of here. But Chase refused. And so instead, his roommates moved out. They were like, okay, then bye. I feel like that's the, like, well, if you can't remove them from the situation, remove yourself. And it's like, well, I live there, but that I'm just very impressed. I wouldn't have left. I would be like, oh, no, we're fucking throwing you out. We're evicting your ass. Well, and the thing was, Chase wasn't paying for this. His parents were. So he's left alone in this apartment, and... It enabled his tendencies to become even more extreme and even more gruesome. So in the summer of 1977, several neighborhood pets, including his mother's cat, would fall victim to his thirst. So again, he believes he needs fresh blood to survive. So he started capturing and killing small animals. He would then eat them raw or blend their organs with soda and drink the mixture. No, 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 no. Are you fucking He's kidding me? He's having a kitty cat smoothie. To make matters even worse. That's one of the grossest things I've ever heard. Uh, we're just getting started. Oh, joy. He even like did this to his mom's cat in, in front of her. He killed her cat and drank the blood <gasps> in, in front of his mom. Soon, the small game wasn't enough. He wanted something bigger. So in August, police picked up Chase wandering around near Lake Tahoe in Nevada. He was naked and his body was smeared with blood and a bucket of blood was found in his truck. A bucket? bucket. However, in this case, the victim was a cow. So Chase was never prosecuted and they let him on his way. Uh, I guess animal cruelty laws weren't, might not have been around at this time. They they must not have been, but... He really liked the movie Carrie, didn't he? It was probably his favorite. Um, So his human sacrifices would start just a few months later. Oh, Because obviously that's where we're going here. This is a a murder podcast. yeah. So the first murder to be discovered was on January 23rd, 1978, when truck driver David Wallen, who was 24 years old, returned home from work to his North Sacramento home to find his pregnant wife, Terry, who was 22, murdered. Chase had entered the home of Terry through her unlocked front door. He shot her three times and proceeded to stab her with a butcher knife. He slit her torso open and cut out her organs. Additionally, he raped her corpse. And he had also apparently eaten parts of her body and using a yogurt container as a cup, drank her blood. What the fuck? He also bathed in her blood and finished the crime scene by stuffing dog feces in her mouth. I don't know how to respond. Yeah, remember when I said this one basically made me sick when I was doing research? Now you know why. Uh, yeah. 
So police immediately worked with the newly established FBI Behavioral Science Unit to come up with a profile of the serial killer. And so, like we've talked about multiple times before, in the 70s was when FBI profiling was established. And so it was still a new science, Mm -hmm. but they absolutely knew that this was the case they needed to use it on. So Robert Ressler and his colleague Russ Vorpegel... They sketched a close likeness of Chase, a scrawny young loner, unkempt, dirty, and disorganized, subsiding on someone else's money, which is basically him to a T. Yeah. So this profile, you know, it's going to become clear later that it was very accurate, but it did not come quickly enough to prevent further tragedy. Four days after the Wallen murder, Sacramento police were investigating another gory crime scene. Evelyn Miroth, who was 38, she was a divorcee and a mother of three. Her friend Daniel Meredith, who was 52, and Evelyn's son Jason, who was six, were found shot with a 22 caliber gun and slashed. Daniel was murdered in the hallway. He was dead by the gunshot wound to the head, and Chase subsequently stole his car keys. Evelyn and Jason were found in Evelyn's bedroom. Six-year-old Jason had been shot twice in the head. Evelyn was partially cannibalized, her stomach was cut open, and she had multiple of her organs missing. There was also a failed attempt to remove one of her eyes, and she had been sodomized as well. Another boy, David Feria, who was Evelyn's 22-month-old nephew, had been left in his aunt's care that day, and he was missing. But in his crib, there was a large blood stain, along with a pillow containing a bullet hole. Oh. The child's decapitated corpse would be found a few months later, and there had been a knock on the door, and a visitor startled Chase, and so he just took David's body and fled in Daniel's stolen car. Chase ended up drinking David's blood and ate his brain. The visitor, who had knocked on the door, knew something was wrong, and they called the cops, and that's how the crime scene was discovered. So there was a significant lead for the police that came from a woman in her 20s who mentioned that she ran into a man she had gone to high school with, and he approached her car. She noticed that his eyes were sunken, he was really thin, and he had blood stains on his sweatshirt. So at this point, she identified him as Richard Chase. And at this point in his life, he had pretty much stopped eating all solid food. He was basically surviving on blood of animals, organs of animals, and human. So he was very thin. So weirdly, one of the things that sticks out, uh, probably because I'm trying to push everything else away, is that his, his earlier concern years ago was that he wasn't getting any vitamin C, and yet now he's literally not getting any vitamin C. he's not eating any fruit. I know. He's probably thinking next to some oranges, Dude has though. some scurvy, for sure. Yes. So police then discovered that Richard Chase lived within a mile of most of these murder sites. And it was not long before detectives, led by Lieutenant Ray Biondi, zeroed in on Chase. They apprehended him as he tried to flee his stinking apartment. Wondering why his apartment smells, you'll find out here in a moment. I don't want to find out. You can end your case here if you want. I have a little bit left, unfortunately. Um, So authorities were able to identify Chase because of a handprint he had left in Evelyn's blood at 
the second crime scene, and a 22 caliber pistol was found in his apartment that linked him back to all of these murders. Additionally, bloodstained rags and a blender with bloody residue were found in his apartment. Oh my fucking god, I forgot about the blender. And dishes with human brain and body parts were in the fridge, left police with no doubt that they they had their man. Additional evidence came when they found Daniel Meredith's wallet in Chase's home. Yeah. Another particularly terrifying thing that the police found was Chase's wall calendar with the word today written on the dates of the killings. And there were 44 future dates marked in this very same manner. So he clearly, like, things were happening. Things were going to be done. So after he was arrested, Chase was linked to another murder that happened on December 29th, 1977. So this one is actually attributed as his very first murder. Okay. It was a drive-by shooting of Ambrose Griffin, who was 51 and an engineer. He and his wife were just unloading the car after grocery shopping when two 22 caliber bullets tore into his chest. Chase confessed that Griffin was the first human blood he shed. and But he didn't eat or drink the blood or anything. He, it was just a drive-by shooting. It was just a drive-by shooting. It was probably what gave him the ammunition to move from animals to humans, knowing that he could kill a yeah. human. Yeah. And he also said that he did it out of frustration because his mom would not let him come home for Christmas. So he was just pissed and wanted to kill something. And Ambrose happened to be the, the victim. So after this very first murder, all of his subsequent murders that I've talked about, they all hinge on his ability to enter homes whose owners left their doors unlocked. So when he was later asked how he chose his victims, he said that he entered homes where the doors had been left unlocked. He admitted to walking the streets and checking to see if doors were unlocked. And, and he said, if the door was locked, it meant you were not welcome. But if it was unlocked, it was an invitation. And this actually harks back to vampire lore when it said that a vampire can't enter someone's home unless they've been invited in. That is so fucked up. Yeah. Also, just, you're not a vampire, dude. You're this fucked up murderer killing these innocent people, you know, having a goddamn foam party like it's spring break 2006 in their blood and organs. And no, this is, I fucking hate this case. I told you it was very easily the most disturbing and gruesome ever. Yeah. So at at Chase's trial which started on January 2nd, 1979, prosecutors sought the death penalty, even though his defense team held that their client was not guilty by reason of insanity. After five months of testimony damn, and five hours of deliberation, the jury sided with the prosecutors and they found Chase sane enough to know that his actions were wrong and guilty of six counts of murder in the first degree, which was punishable by death in California's gas chamber. Honestly, again, and this this harkens back to a conversation we've had many times about not guilty by reason of insanity hinging on the fact that you have to not understand the actions you're doing are wrong. Right. Because to me, this case, very clearly, he is mentally ill. I would think on pen and paper, yeah, 
the insanity defense is absolutely true. I know. And- but in his case, I mean, he very clearly knows what he's doing is wrong, but is fine with it. Which is, I think, more horrifying than any other alternative. It really is. But I will say, I think a lot of why his insanity defense didn't work is because doctors had released him from psychiatric care. And, you know, even with the things that he was doing there, they were like, nope, as long as you take meds, you're good. However, for reasons unknown, his mom weaned him off his medication. So he was not taking it. And this is where it's hard to say, you know, whether he actually should have been released or not. But also the the care that he was released into, that wasn't what the case was. But it sounds like this could have been something that potentially his mom had in common as far as some type of mental illness. Because otherwise, I don't think she would have weaned him off his meds when he so clearly needed them. I mean, that was evident. Yeah. I mean, he needed them, but still, I just, with all the things that he was doing when he was in the institution, I I don't have medical training and I wasn't there, but I still do not understand why and how he was given the go-ahead to be released. Same. Because I would assume the medication that they said, here, take these as he's leaving, was what he was being given in the institution and clearly he was still doing some fucked up shit well and that's also assuming he was actually taking his meds because while he was waiting for execution he was hoarding his antidepressants that they were offering him to calm him down and on december 26 1980 chase swallowed all of the pills that he had been hoarding and ended his own life so there's obviously a lot involved It is adamantly clear this was a mentally disturbed individual, but the things that he did are worse than a horror movie. I cannot fathom your It is so hard to comprehend, and researching this was extremely difficult, Um, even more difficult than Issei Sagawa, who was the cannibal who ended up not serving, like, any jail time. Yeah, that we did. That that was your case in our cannibals episode. This one was even more difficult than that because of everything he was doing and that it was multiple people and animals and the fact that he had been in psychiatric care and then was released. It's just, it's all of the things that piled up to just create the biggest monster ever and the fact that there's this like creepy vampire lore of like you know vampires have to be invited in and that's why he felt like unlocked doors meant that he was welcome to come in and kill these victims and drink their blood like a vampire that is some bullshit Mm -hmm. so Uh, i think with that we should probably just go ahead and jump into postmortem we've already kind of started I mean, yeah, I I mean, I'm gonna, I think hands down, this one goes to you. I think because, you know, obviously Richard Ramirez was basically the devil and he did yeah. a lot. I think just how disturbing the, think, Richard Chase was and how yeah. it, it's like there was so much opportunity for this to not happen, but it still did. Yeah. Like, the fact that he was found naked, covered in cow's blood, and nothing came of that. 
Like, there was so yeah. much opportunity to prevent what he did. There were. And I mean, while both Richard Ramirez and Richard Chase, I mean, these are brutal. Richard Chase, it's brutal in such a different level. It is so inhumane. It's so inhumane. And I cannot, I mean, you said at the very beginning, you know, he definitely falls on the upper end of the fucked up scale. I think he is the upper end of the fucked up scale. I cannot imagine something more fucked up than murdering these people tearing them apart eating them raping them adults children babies all of them i know i have i have no words for well this. and i will say the fact that it was anyone whether adult child male female does tip the scale to make him in my mind even worse than Dahmer, which Dahmer, to me, before I read all the details about Chase, was that upper end of the scale where I'm like, no, literally the things you were doing are so horrific that I can't believe this Mm -hmm. is real and not a fiction book. I mean, a fiction horror book. But Chase, there was something about this case when I was reading it that just, it was hard. And I know there's more information that I could have found, but I literally could not stomach diving any deeper than i did fair so i'll pick the topic for the next episode um i'm gonna tell you that um i don't know what the topic's gonna be and i don't know what my case is gonna be but it's gonna be less fucked up than this episode because i don't know if it would be possible to top it i don't think and i don't want to try we could get more fucked up than this but uh hey just as a side note and a recap of this episode just to top it off seriously guys lock your door like even if you're living in a really nice neighborhood that's great but these things can happen anywhere and locking your door is at least putting one barrier in between you and someone opening your door that doesn't belong there yeah i mean like like karen and georgia my favorite murder say lock your fucking door I mean, it, it's sometimes the barrier of locking your door is purely psychological because, you know, in a lot of cases, if, if someone is going to, you know, murder or something, yeah, they can probably break through a door, but that impediment, that thing in their way can often be a lot to stop people. And also just lock your fucking doors. Like, just do it because... I'm very guilty of if I'm home, I don't think about it because I'm like, oh, which I I'm don't home. understand. But also, for I'm me, like, it is a reflex. I open the door, I come in, and I lock it. Like even before I put my stuff down and put Charlie on his leash to then take him out. So it's like, no, but it's just it's automatic. I lock the door. Yeah, I mean, it if locking your door prevents a crime that you never know about happening because you had your door locked and it didn't happen, then it's fucking worth it. Also, side note, um, one of the hardest locks for an intruder to break is actually that little chain lock on hotel doors. That little tiny ass chain that you're like, oh, I bet I could sneeze and it would break this, is in fact one of the hardest things to break. So if you're in a hotel and you want to just lock one lock for some reason make sure it's the chain lock 
Also, it gives you the option to be like, hey, I'm going to open the door an inch. What's up? Well, and also, you can buy those and install them on any door. You can. And they're kind of cute. I mean, you could put a little a little uh, something on the chain. You know, a little, like, metal, I don't know, like, pin or something on the chain. Make it look mm-hmm. cute. Make it Art Deco. Turn that security into home improvement. And I'm so excited to announce we're actually moving to a home improvement channel network. No, we're not. Anyways, if y'all like this episode, then head over to Apple Podcast. Uh, give us that five-star rating. I don't know. I feel like liked is just a weird word to say with this. It but... is, but it's it's not necessarily liked. It's more so if you have a fascination for why people do and think this way and why they take these actions. I mean, that's the whole, that's why we're doing this. Like, I'm fascinated in the mental, like, what's going on in their heads. Why do people succumb to these urges? Yeah. And I mean, it's, I don't know, because to me, it doesn't sound weird to be like, oh my God, I loved this documentary I saw on Ted Bundy on you know, investigation discovery or something like that. But I don't know. It just, as we exit the case and we're on the, the downward slope to be like, Oh my God, all of the murder. Well, if y'all like this <laughs> sounds, I don't know. It feels weird to say, but I also, I get yeah. it. So anyways, if y'all did like it, give us those ratings. Um, yes. Yeah. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also go to bloodandwinepodcast.com to visit our website, learn a little bit about us, um, visit our merch store. That's where that is located. And yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening. Yes. Thank you all so much. This is Blood and Wine signing XOXO. off. Bye, you guys. Bye.